think that was just a clever combination of two words. Be and attitude, right? So we should be people with these attitudes. How many, how many of you have been with me on that? Thinking that's what that meant. Okay. One more than last service. Last, oh, there, okay. I got two. All right. I'm feeling better and better. Okay. It turns out, however, that beatitude doesn't mean that. I was wrong. And sorry for the two of you that raised your hand. You are also wrong. Uh, the word beatitude comes from the Latin, which simply means blessedness. That's all it is. It's just a repetition of the first word of each verse in this passage. I personally kind of prefer my version better, but opposites cannot both be true. So we'll go with what's true. But this first verse, the one that we'll focus our attention on today, is verse 3. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's tough being humbled, isn't it? Being humbled is, is not the best feeling, but it's so good. We need it. And as I was preparing this week and thinking about humility, I thought of this TV show, a show that uh, brings humility to a great deal of people. And the show I'm thinking of is called Nailed It. Nailed it. It's one of those baking shows that are so popular now, and they, they purposefully bring contestants on the show who have no clue what they're doing. So you know, before the show even starts, it is not going to end well. It's not going to end well, but that's, that's the point. That's the entertainment value. So at the beginning, the judges, they bring out this cake or some decorated baked good that, that the contestants will then have to replicate. They get a couple hours in their kitchen, they get all the ingredients, all the, all the supplies, the tools and all that. And when the work is done, they bring their finished product out, and when they reveal the cake, they have to say, nailed it! But they never do. They never do. It's kind of cruel, actually, if you think about it. But here, here are a few examples. We have some examples to see. So you see this beautiful wedding cake, perhaps, and there was the uh, best effort of that contestant. They, they didn't nail it. And then see the shark. If you look closer, there's a, there's some legs hanging out of the shark's mouth and a surfboard, and and I don't know what's hanging out of the other whatever that thing is. And then that, that one's my favorite. That's probably the easiest of the three and the worst, <laughs> the worst effort of the three. That's tough. <laughs> but we all laugh at it, right? It's always a humbling experience for these contestants, but somebody always wins somehow, I guess just for being the least terrible. If you go back a few years and you think of some of the other earlier shows in this trend of uh, reality shows with the judges and the contestants, like uh, maybe American Idol, some of those people would have uh, come on and they sing in front of the judges, and sometimes it was clear that the singers had never heard anyone tell them the bad news. That they, in fact, were actually quite terrible, right? They're terrible singers. And their mamas were, had they'd lowered the bar a bit too much for their children, right? Uh, in reality, they were just not good singers, but the mothers, as mothers should, of course, always found their singing to be wonderful. But they weren't the best. You see, when when we lower the bar... When you lower the expectation for excellence, you can get pretty proud of how great you are when you're not really that great at all. Of course, let's not talk about participation trophies, right? The idea of lowering the bar, though, and therefore feeling pretty great about ourselves, that actually sets us up well to move into the background of this passage today. And I say this because in Israel... When Christ had come and and was living amongst the people that he had created, that he had set apart, the bar had been lowered. I'll go ahead and turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Uh, The Jewish leaders had written new laws. They'd written more laws that would have been uh, written in order. Originally, the idea was to help people keep the laws that God had given to them. Except that the new laws that had been written by them became more important to them than the ones that God had given. I mean, you feel pretty special when people keep the laws you write, don't we? And as a result, in Israel, those in those days, uh, your perceived spirituality, your perceived spirituality, your perceived religious zeal had everything to do with how you obeyed man's rules and little to nothing to do with love 
justice, integrity, you know, actual righteousness and obedience to God. And this is what Jesus thought of all this. So Matthew chapter 23, we start in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Uh, They are in this place of authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their, their fringes long. And the phylacteries thing there, you know, what in the world is that? In the law, there was a, there was an instruction to keep God's word tied to your forehead. And it just basically meant have it in your mind. Have it before you all the time. Be in it. Be reading it. Be learning it. Be memorizing it. But they said, oh, put a box on your head and tie it to your forehead. I can do that. And so the bigger the box, the more spiritual you were. Uh, that's the idea. And they actually still do that today. Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You're all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Uh, go ahead and look at verse 23 in the same chapter. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Instead, remember, they added more, and they demanded everyone else do them. Verse 24 says, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. When the inside is clean, it results in the change of the outside. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear, appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Jesus saw through it, right? But they appeared righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And realize when we appear beautiful religiously, but we are not inside, what was the result? Dead people's bones. Dead people's bones. It's not, it's not just a passive or a neutral thing. It hurts people, doesn't it? And this was what things were like for the Jews in their day. And even though all these rules were hard to keep up with and follow, the bar had been lowered. And I say, boy, there was a lot of stuff to keep track of. And yet the bar was still lowered. Because these rules were just men's rules. They weren't God's. And because they were writing and working on keeping these man-made rules, they, they felt pretty special about themselves. And so their expectation for the coming Messiah was like this. Okay, the Messiah, he's gonna come. He's going to find us being awesome and defeat Rome, of course, so that we can be on top, right where we belong. So imagine their anger when they realized that Jesus was rebuking them. Them. Who does this guy think he is, they might say. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He thinks we're wicked. Look how awesome we are. Knowing this, let's let's now go back to Matthew 5, and actually Matthew 4. Uh, so far in Matthew, Jesus has entered this world. He's grown up. Uh, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He was tempted and yet without sin. He's calling his disciples. He's beginning to preach. He's healing people. 
And back to chapter 423, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. I say, well, in what way and for what reason? Well, they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. They brought all. Remember, when Jesus was healing these crowds, the people in these crowds, there wasn't a handicapped section off to the side, off the, off the view of the camera. All. It says in verse 25, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then chapter 5 begins, Seeing these crowds, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, this hillside at the north of the Sea of Galilee. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's all the crowds. And from out of the crowds, his disciples came out from the crowds and went up and sat with him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So let's see what we have here. Uh, Jesus is healing and doing miracles. And understandably, right? I mean, understandably, crowds of people are gathering to him. Jesus goes up to this hillside away from the crowd, as he often did. And when he sat down, that was the signal. It was time to listen. Uh, rabbis would take a seat to teach. It was the formality in that time. We still use the terminology today in colleges, universities, the, the chair of this department. But informal teaching was done while standing, uh, as you walked through and all that kind of stuff. So, so when Jesus sat down, they, they may very well have known it was, it was teaching time. And then the disciples, knowing Jesus is about to teach, followers of Christ, they came and sat beside him. The crowds, they stay where they are, and the disciples follow Christ up the hill, up the mount, and literally sit under his teaching. And with their action, with all of this scene, we we also have this visual, a visual of what really is true, what happens. There is a separation physically that will mirror the separation of identity that comes from this teaching, from the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon. There is a difference between the world and followers of Christ. There are core differences. There's a distinction. They are distinct. And we'll see how in these next three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. But we have to be careful in how we see these distinctions. It's important that we see these rightly. As Jesus begins to teach, and and particularly as we begin to look at the Beatitudes today, please understand that what Jesus is giving here is a description, a description of his true followers. Now, the Sermon on the Mount certainly contains truths that we want to be shooting for, that we want to be growing in, but it is first a description of what Christians are, not a prescription for what they should be doing better. These qualities are attitudes, characteristics, uh, not a new list of rules that you need to try harder to keep. So the Beatitudes also are a description for all Christians. It's not a few, not a, not an elite thing. It is for all Christians. And they also build on one another. This first one is foundational to what comes after and after and after. And we'll see that as we go. Uh, so we certainly want to grow in these characteristics, right? And we want to do that. We want to be growing in these things, seeing improvement in these things. And as we look at these Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon, uh, we'll want to see ways that growth is encouraged, But if we read this and simply say, do this better, you better do this better, we'll be missing the point. Does that make sense? There is something about hearing a message on humility, and then we think, oh, okay, all right, I got this. That doesn't sit right, does it? We don't got this. And realizing that is the point. Realizing we don't got this is the point. So let's now look specifically at verse 3. The first word, blessed or blessed. The Greek word translated as blessed means happy. Blissful, even. In the Greek, the word is used normally in context to refer to an inward contentedness. 
a contentedness that is not affected by external circumstances. So even in thinking about happiness itself, the world, the word itself begins to tell us this. Uh, there is a happiness, a, a true contentment that is not dependent on everything outside of us going the way others or we ourselves might think they need to go. There's a happiness that is rooted in us, given to us, that is independent of all that. And even as we think about humility today, it is not, this stuff happened and it made me humble. Instead, it's this, I am humbled and therefore can be happy, even in the midst of hardship. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says it like this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing, uh, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Neither one of those brought happiness and neither one of them can take it away from us. Because he says that in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Jesus is saying here that there is a happiness that we can have, that we can truly be content. And this is where we say, oh, I know, if I could just have fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. And we start filling the blank in. If I could have more money, if I could have uh, more health, get over this sickness, if I could stop having to wear these masks, if I could have more friends, when in reality, even friends, when we're doing this, we really want more fans, not biblical friendship. Um, If I could be better looking, if I could have a nicer car, uh, you name it, right? This is what makes people happy. No. People who have a deep spiritual need Can we fill that right up with a temporal, physical item? We know that's not true. We especially know it's not true when we're sitting at church. (laughs) But we get tricked into it over and over, don't we? We can get tricked into it over and over. And it doesn't have to be somebody else outside of us to trick us. It can be our own thinking. So then here come these paradoxes in in the sermon and in Beatitudes. Uh, And the first of many twists from what the world would think. And I would say to you that even as we go through this thing, there would be a, there would be a part of us, all of us, that fights against this. Because it's just not how we're wired in the, in the curse. It is how God wired us. <laughs> That's not how we are in the curse. That's not how the world operates. Okay? So here comes this, these truths that begin to separate the religious lost and the world from the tr- truly redeemed children of God. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor? You think poor? Really poor? Uh, happiness does not come through wealth financially. We say, yeah, we know that. Or from feeling wealthy in spirit. Neither one of those things would be true. Uh, the word for poor here means to shrink back, to cower, or to cringe. And the idea is that there is a complete absence of any possession. Think of it almost like a vacuum pulling it all out. There's nothing left inside. And there is another word for poor that Jesus could have used here. There's another word for poor that that means just simply not having much. Not having much money, but having a little. But not a beggar. Jesus didn't use that word. He used this one. This poor means you have nothing. Nothing. We are destitute. We are left to nothing but begging. And if no one gives us anything, we will continue to have nothing. And if we try to put together everything we can find in our pockets, if we try to multiply all of our spiritual possessions, zero times zero equals zero. Zero. And this is spiritual poverty. Uh, some people try to take this as a material poverty. Like if I, if I get rid of all of my possessions and I become poor, uh, then I'm going to be happy. They think that they're going to just do this. Which again, remember, that kind of goes contrary to what the meaning of this passage is, doesn't it? But if we got rid of all of our possessions and became materially poor, we wouldn't be able to obey Matthew 5.42. 
You can't be generous and give to others materially if you don't have anything to give. So it's not material poverty. Spiritually, we don't have anything. And here's, here's the thing. If we want to try to obey that materially, we have to get rid of stuff to make ourselves materially poor. You don't have to get rid of anything to make yourself spiritually poor. That's where we already are. There's nothing to get rid of. Does that make sense? The in, the in spirit part. Poor in spirit. That simply means to be sincere, truthful. A person who is poor in spirit is a person who truly, sincerely, genuinely sees themselves correctly and knows, therefore, that there's nothing to offer. And please understand, what I just said there is incredibly countercultural. Very much so. Even in, even in many churches. Or a lot. A person who is poor in spirit is a person who truly sees themselves correctly and knows there's nothing there to offer. And here are a couple of examples of what I mean. Uh, in first, in Romans seven eighteen, Paul confesses, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And seeing uh, Jesus bring in a miraculous catch of fish, Peter declared, Depart from me! For I am a sinful man, O Lord. When, when Peter realized who this was, he said, I can't even be with you. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he cried out, Woe is me! The Pharisees had to have Jesus tell them, Woe unto you! Isaiah says, Woe is me! For I am lost, a man of unclean lips. And then go ahead and turn to Luke 18. A great example, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We're going to look here for a direct, a direct comparison, a contrast with the one who is religious and thinks, he thinks he's got something to offer versus the one who knows he is destitute and in utter need of rescue. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Uh, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some to some, who's the audience? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and treated others with contempt. And that's what we do, right? If we're being self-righteous, we treat others with contempt. Verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, a hated tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God... I thank you that I am not like other men. And when we see the rest of this prayer, it's more like, God, you're welcome that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, oh, don't do it. This, he's going there. This tax collector. I fast twice a week. And God says, no. Right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, the Pharisee's standing by himself so he can be seen. You realize that? And praying to be heard. This tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that tax collector, this man went down to his house justified, declared not guilty, righteous before God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see what Jesus is teaching here? Does it make sense to you? Uh, there were religious people who thought they were doing great, when in reality they were, as it says in Matthew 15, they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When what God wants is what is written in Isaiah 66, 
where he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. We can make up new rules and new systems all the time. Uh, Just even comparing ourselves to others. Our new law can be as simple as uh, be better than that crazy evil person. We realize as soon as we get to comparing ourselves and we think we're good because we're better than somebody else, we've just written a new law. We just have written a new law. And, and we start with that to think that we're pretty awesome. We, we tend to write laws for ourselves that we think we have a chance to keep, right? And when we do, we think we're pretty awesome. Uh, for some of us, it doesn't take much. Uh, we're often, or even told, to think we are awesome. We are educated and told to think we are awesome. Think highly of yourself. You are great. You are so amazing. You are so worth it. So esteem yourself highly. And if you don't think highly of yourselves, if you would be what would be considered low self-esteem, then you need to think more highly of yourself. That's the cure, right? Make sure you keep thinking about yourself first. And convince yourself that you actually are awesome. As if the answer to low self-esteem is simply just high self-esteem. But then what happens when evidence starts to show up that we're not so amazing, that we have issues, that we have problems, that we're not perfect. And they have this just constant back and forth. But what does Proverbs 16.5 say? Everyone who is arrogant, inflated in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. It doesn't say high or low, it just says arrogant, inflated. So the answer to high and low self-esteem is, is to no longer esteem yourself. And then start to start esteeming God. That's the answer. And then there's Revelation 3.17. Uh, Jesus in this, in this verse is warning the lukewarm church at Laodicea. It says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing, and this is Jesus speaking to them, sending them this word. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Please realize this is, this is not just a first century Jewish problem. This is not a first century church problem. I, I could take you to nearly any Christian bookstore and find you a book or 500 or so or whatever that tell you to think this way. They tell you to think this way. They might even put a verse or two in there that really shouldn't be taken that way in context. One of them is even titled, I Am. Sounds like a great title, right, for a Christian book. I am. But in that book, this is what it tells you to do. You're supposed to say and tell yourself, I am rich. I am healthy. I am strong. I am prosperous. The idea being so that you will become who you know you are. Visualization techniques. That isn't biblical. It's not true. What did Christ tell the church in Revelation they needed to see? I'm wretched. I'm pitiable. I'm poor. I'm blind. I'm naked. And, and here's the thing. This is where we got to like fight against the grain here. Christ wasn't being mean to them. He wasn't being mean to them. That's what the culture would say today. Don't say those things to those people. You're going to hurt their ego. But he was loving them by speaking truth to them in love for their good. And this is why, because if a person who is truly destitute doesn't know it, he won't beg. If a person has a desperate need that they can never meet, They can never provide for themselves. When are they going to ever, if they don't know it, when are they going to ask for it? They need to know. We need to know. We are destitute. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we never realize we are empty, 
we can never be filled. If we don't realize we need saving, when will we ever honestly cry out, Lord, save me? But when God graciously opens our eyes to the truth, when we see that we are truly poor, that Jesus is our only hope, then, and only then, will we be truly happy, truly blessed, content in Him. Does that make sense? And it's a realization. It it isn't, you need to become poor. That's not what He's saying. He's saying, we are. And when we see it and we understand it and we cry out, then we're blessed. Why? Where's the result? And that's the rest of the verse. This is what comes of it, praise God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think, think of the depth of happiness being a direct result of the depth of the grace of God that he's given to us. If I think, well, I'm a little better than most other people, and I'm sure God thinks just like me, or maybe, you know, he's God, so a tad bit better. So I'm sure that we'll be cool, and, and I'll be there in heaven. There's not really much excitement to be had there. And if there is, it's excitement in ourselves, which is unfounded. But when we see the pure holiness of God, he is our maker He is wholly good, entirely, perfectly good. He is entirely righteous. He is all-knowing, even the secret things of the heart. God knows everything. And he's all-powerful. And he is completely and perfectly just. Just. We cry out for justice. God is just. And his glory is so great. His justice is so perfect that what we all truly deserve is eternal hell. You think about that sometimes, think, eternity? Isn't that a bit much? Well, yeah, if you and I were making that call, yes. But if God is perfectly just, and if eternal hell is just, how holy, how much glory does he possess? That that would be just for those who reject him, who choose to do it their own way. The holiness and the glory of God. And being in the condition that we're in, totally spiritually destitute, a complete absence of ability, even the good things we would do in our sin are stained by the rest of our lives. And the selfish motives that sometimes or often make us do what others might look at and think are all good. Appearance. And in the condition we are in, God took the initiative. God took the initiative. He loved us first. Christ died for us when we would never have called on him to do so because we thought we were in pretty good shape as it was. Christ died for us. God the Son suffering all, all of our punishment. Do we know how much Christ suffered for us, for me, for you? I don't think we know. I don't think we know. I think when we do know in that day, the glory, the praise will just go Beyond what we would imagine. And then the Spirit opened our eyes. In this life, the Spirit opened our eyes and and brought us to life. Uh, We didn't crack the code or even desire to find a solution to our problem. Dead people buried in the graves aren't thinking right now about a way out of the grave. They're dead. We didn't figure it out. God did it for us. He raised us from the dead. You would say, well, what problem? What do you mean I have a problem? Are you telling me there's something wrong with me? That's what we're prone to think like. The Spirit took our dead selves and brought us to life so that we would see Jesus and believe and be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of our own doing. God did all of it. He did it. 
He did all of it. And as he's promised, he's promised to make us like Christ. It just keeps going. It keeps getting better, doesn't it? He's going to make us just like Christ. He's going to reward us. Him rewarding us. Him making us joint heirs with Christ. That's not fair. It's not fair. And Jesus said in this verse, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs. It's a, it's a possessive word. It's ours. It belongs to us too. It's not fair. It's not fair. And, and when we're honest about who we are and what we deserve and we realize what God has done for us, we have reason to be happy. We have, we have reason for joy. We have reason for contentment. How could we think that we need something more than this? Or that there's something better down here in this world? Or even deep down inside of us. If we dig deep and there's nothing, there's not going to be more that we find. Until Christ is there. Listen, I've already brought this up a little bit ago, but uh, remember many Christians, professing Christians, we do want more sometimes, don't we? We think there's something else to be had. Some perhaps, they, they pray to prayer and, and they're good Americans and everything and they, they like going to church and they don't really do bad stuff. I mean, at least out in the open, right? And they're better than that guy. And, and whenever the church has new rules, boy, they're on it. And the rules of the 70s and the rules of the 80s and the 90s and the, boy, they were all over it. They kept them. And they didn't like others who didn't. It's gut-wrenching, isn't it? To think of how many who may call themselves Christians who may be shocked to hear Jesus say, Depart from me, worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. You say, but Jesus! And that's what they say in this. And this is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll be there in a while. But they say, but Jesus! We did all these amazing things in your name! Surely we have what it takes. We're bringing this all to the table here. We're no beggars. Exactly. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Listen, we are beggars. We have nothing to bring to the table but our sin. Our righteousness, Isaiah 64, is as filthy rags. We have every reason to be humble, to be poor in spirit. And when we remember this, And when we consider the truth of the gospel, when we consider what God has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, we have reason to be genuinely happy. Not fake happy, not slap a smile on it happy when things aren't right. Genuinely happy. To be truly content. Even at times when everything down here isn't right. There's times for sadness, right? There's times for hurt. But there's reason for contentment that never goes away in the midst of it. There's reason for hope even in those times. And as we grow in our humility, we grow in that blessedness, our happiness. So now the question we might ask is this. Okay? How do we grow in humility? Alright, we talk about humility. Let's, let's do this. Let's grow in humility. It would seem really counterproductive though to say, All right, church, I have the secret. I have the secret to becoming more humble. Get out your papers and pen. I'm the best, by the way, at being humble. So this is the guy you want to talk to. If you listen to me, I will show you how to be more humble. And if you're lucky, maybe someday you'll almost be as humble as me. That's when you're like, yeah, I'm out. See ya, right? (laughs) That's enough of that. It doesn't work like that, does it? Being humble isn't necessarily something you get better at. You just get better at it. It isn't a skill that you can hone or refine. Being humble is something that you are. Something you become. It's the fruit of something else. And that something else is considering the gospel. Knowing and understanding the gospel. Jerry Bridges coined this phrase, preaching the gospel to yourself. Preaching the gospel to yourself. The the writer of Hebrews 12 said it this way, looking to Jesus, 
the author and the perfecter of your faith. The Apostle Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing who He is and what He's done in the Gospel for us, for our salvation, therefore being transformed. That's a passive word. Beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It happens to us. Humility happens to us as we behold Him. So what I'm suggesting to you is that growing in humility will not be the result of your efforts to get more humble. (laughs) Instead, growing in humility will be the direct result of your being amazed by Jesus. That's it. Those people unnailed it. They weren't humbled just by looking at their own cakes. When there was, when there's nothing to compare it to, or maybe they're just looking at that one compared to the last one they tried to make and like, man, I'm getting pretty good at this now. When they're looking at what they've done in the past, that's not how we grow, right? But when you look at that terrible version compared to the original, well, now those, uh, those novice bakers had reason for humility. When we look at Jesus, when we meditate on his glory, his goodness, his love, his work to rescue us, we have reason to be humble. And therefore, we are humbled. And when we're humbled, there'll be fruit. There'll be fruit of that. So as we grow in looking, at, in looking to Jesus, as we grow in preaching the gospel to ourselves and understanding, believing our spiritual poverty, our own spiritual poverty to be true, here will be some evidences, evidences, some fruits of our growing humility. So please understand, I'm not saying, here's a humble list, try harder. Not saying that. Because if you try harder and you think you're nailing these things, that's not growing in humility. As we grow, as we are humbled, these are some of the changes that we will see and that will be increasingly true of us. And please understand, this list is not exhaustive. These are examples, uh, just simply examples of the fruits of repentance, the fruits of humility. So things like this. Uh, First, uh, we'll be a lot less preoccupied with ourselves and more preoccupied with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And by the way, this is where our confidence comes from. Confidence. Uh, being humble is not the same thing as lacking confidence. Sometimes we think that, right? We go like, oh, I'm just terrible. Nobody should talk to me. And that we think, oh, that guy's so humble. Well, no, he lacks confidence. <laughs> the answer is not um, to be super into yourself and thinking you're, you have reason for confidence in yourself. Uh, we can have all the confidence in the world, or we should say a different from the world, when our confidence is placed where it belongs. Does that make sense? Our confidence can be great when it's placed in the right place. And that place is in Christ. In Christ Knowing him for who he is, uh, being poor in spirit ourselves, that will drive us to put our confidence in him alone. And so we could say it this way. We'll be less full of ourselves in humility. We'll be less full of ourselves and more filled with the spirit. In humility and being filled with the spirit, being under the lordship of Christ, that will give us a righteous confidence, a holy boldness. A second, we will see a less complaining and more gratitude. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, we have been given more than we could ever hope for. And so it gives us a heart of gratitude. The third, we will see less comparing of ourselves with others and more joy for what everyone else has been blessed with. Ooh, that one can be hard sometimes, right? You could rejoice with your neighbor that his grass is greener than yours, that the grass is greener on the other side. You could actually rejoice with your neighbor in that and mean it, and mean it too. Fourth, 
we will see less carelessness with the word of God and more desire to hear from our Lord. If our confidence is placed in him, if we are submitted to him, we will want to know what he said to us. We will read the Bible because we want to. Fifth, we'll be seeing in ourselves less worry and more prayer. Less worry, more prayer. Worry is me trying to figure out this big mess that I'm in. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to, I'm going to get a plan. I'm going to execute the plan. This is going to go great. But it's not because I'm worried about it and I know it's going to fail, right? That's worry. Remember, beggars beg. When a beggar realizes that's their condition, they beg. Humble people pray. Prayerlessness, we could say, is a sign of pride. And a sincere desire to pray is a sign of humility. Sixth, when we do sin, when we do sin, and we're going to, when we do sin, we'll be less concerned with what it's going to mean for us and more concerned with how it will negatively affect others and how it will grieve the Spirit. And so in our sorrow will be, Second Corinthians 7, a godly sorrow, taking vengeance against our sin and seeking reconciliation and restoration with all we hurt. Instead of a worldly sorrow that despairs that we got caught and despairs in how the consequences will negatively affect us. And realize those are just all examples of repentance, aren't they? Examples of growth, examples of Christ-likeness. And in that way, humility is a foundational element to these things coming out of it, fruits. And we could say this a seventh. Less works of the flesh, more fruit of the Spirit. We could look at Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. As we grow in humility, we're going to see less selfishness and more love. Less frustration or angst and more joy. Less war raging within us and against others and more peace. Less impatience, demanding others to meet my needs according to my expectations and more patience. Less rudeness or coldness and more kindness. Less badness or deviation from what is good and more goodness. Less being controlled by what's going on around me. And more being in control, thanks to the Spirit in you, no matter your external circumstances. And we can think that humility means I'm going to cower to all the people around me. That's not being humble. Being humble means I'm available to love them regardless of how they might respond. That's humility. So we could ask this question. As we increase in our awareness of our spiritual poverty, of our, our desperate need for salvation, as we rejoice in the kindness and gracious love of God to save us and to give us the eternal life that he's given us with him, as these truths uh, humble us, what's going to happen? We will grow. We're going to grow. Now listen, if you're here today and, and by the grace of God you realize you've never seen yourself as truly helpless. You've never seen yourself truly as hopeless without Christ. I plead with you to put your faith and trust in him today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cry out to God. If you know you need saving, ask him. And he will save you. Christians, don't forget that truth. If you're a Christian here today, it's because you realized you're poor in spirit. God gave you that awareness. Don't forget that. Because the gospel isn't just for the day you got saved. The gospel matters every day. Church, keep preaching the gospel to yourselves and resting in that truth. Be confident in that. Put your confidence in Christ and then boldly live for him with joy. And then I want to close with this uh, today. These verses from number 6, 24 through 26. And this was a a closing blessing that was given to Israel and is still often used uh, in churches today as like a final benediction, kind of like a formal ending to the the worship service. I want you to listen closely to it and see, see if you can understand what this blessing is saying in the context of this message today, what this blessing is saying. So it says this, number six, 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. We pray that would be true for each one of us today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, that you would bless us and keep us, that you would make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us, that you would lift up your countenance upon us, that we would see you and know you and understand who you are, that you would give us through that peace. Lord, we have nothing to bring in this. We thank you that you brought it all, that you gave us Christ, that he died for us, that every bit of our sin is entirely paid for, that Christ's perfect righteousness has even been put to our account, that we, though we deserve death and hell, have life and eternity with you. God, thank you. Thank you. And Lord, this, this idea, this thinking, uh, it goes against the grain of our natural hearts and And sometimes we even want to make it so that people don't ever feel this. Like we would not even want them to think anything uh, poorly or, or feel bad about being wrong or, or anything like that. We want to, we want to avoid that and just always make people want to smile about everything. And God, God help us. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the truth. Thank you for loving us and telling us and explaining to us who we are, what we are. And then, and then meeting the need and giving us what we needed in Christ. And God, I do pray for us. I pray for our church. I pray for each one here. That as we see and think about, meditate on your great love for us as we preach the gospel to ourselves, Lord, that it would continue to humble us as it should. And that in our humility, we would grow Grow and be faithful followers, bold servants, kind, loving people, joyful people, living in this world for your glory, for the good of others. God, be honored in us and through us, and thank you for the joy, the blessedness that we can have through your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.